I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN, and this is the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's podcast is about backups, and backups are really, really tricky. Um, and we talk through a lot of different things that you have to consider in in making successful backups: uh, security, uh, resilience. Um, how you store the data, uh, how you recover the data and rebuild the systems. We sort of run the gamut and that's the point of doing backups. Um, you really need to think through a lot of the factors that we discuss. So enjoy the conversation. The topic of the day, thank you, is uh, backups. And I went in based on this conversation, I pulled supply chain security into the November 16th. So four weeks out, we'll talk about supply chain security because I think some of these questions are, are tied back to that. Today's topic is backups. Um, something I don't know so much about. So I was hoping to get smarter about how we're rethinking how backups work, what makes backups hard. <laughs> um, so these are all topics, we, these are all comments we, we addressed in designing the topic. So managing the cost of backups, I think we spent well, some what, time. What, uh, yeah. I actually know a lot about backups because I, oh, I was Please start one, of the, one of the founders. And unfortunately, I do have to drop at 2.30. But um, I, I am one of the founders of a company that that um, did what we call data protection, which was backups, basically. <laughs> um, so the question is, is they really fall into a number of categories. You have backups that are configuration backups, i.e., you know, a snap, snap, snapshots of the configuration of a system, and then you have the backups of the data. And they're very different, and they've changed a lot um, in recent years. Um, you know, I think finally people have gotten away from thinking of you know, backups is tape. Uh, I know there's virtual tapes, which I think is just a really weird idea in general. Um, and I think they're still around, um, but I have no idea why one would do that. Um, but, um, but backups also fall into beyond that. The data backups, you have archive for, you know, for, you know, backup for archival purposes, and then you have backups for operational purposes, right? So, so a snapshot of a configuration would be a backup that we, that would be used for um, uh, operational purposes. We we do, you know, if we're going to mm -hmm. do an upgrade, we do a snapshot before the we do the upgrade, right? Um, so, and then okay. after the upgrade is completed and everything's all happy, we do an, a, another snapshot. So we always have a backup of the last known good, let's say. Would, and do you consider that a backup or like a recovery image? Well, so that's interesting. We call them backups, although okay. in reality, they're a recovery image. <laughs> so uh, the terminology has gotten very fuzzy because, mm -hmm. um, you know, Backups from, and, and this is again showing my age. I was, I was, you know, when I was a systems administrator for Kurzweil back 30 years ago, we, um, you know, we had tape backups of things, yeah. and it was a very elaborate system. Um, 
And, you know, we we did incrementals and we had, you know, rolling backups, blah, 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 um, all based on tape. Um, and, you know, that's where all of this kind of started. And the terminology hasn't changed that much, but the technology has changed a lot. Um, so, Rob, I would think that from your perspective, you'd be more interested in the snapshot type um, things. The, where it, <laughs> I, I am, although it's interesting. So that we get we get pulled in for system recovery. So um, people get really excited working with RackN um, on. You know, I want to rebuild. I want to build a new data center from scratch, or I want to rebuild a data center from to a known good state. Right. Um, and that I, I see those as it's interesting as recovery, um, or or build build and build automation infrastructure as code. When I think of the backup, I actually at that point think, all right, then you have a whole bunch of data you need to stuff back into that system. Well, so, Rob, I think in, in some ways, you know, Beth is talking about this. We're all talking, oh, so far we've been talking mostly about machines and images. And really the, the other part of it is the journaling system that captures the data that hasn't actually been committed yet. And that's the other important part of it. It is a, the other important part of it. And <laughs> snapshots also have their disadvantages. Snapshots, you know, they're they're a delta. All they are is they're really just a delta of of a of a image, right? That's and and they're done at the block level. Um, so um, much to my chagrin, I discovered that if somebody has corrupted a database, and the database, so databases are are also backed up this way. But if you've corrupted the database, you can actually not be able to take a snapshot because snapshots, you know, were always touted as being very storage effective, right? Because they're just taking the delta. But if the delta is 100%, you've all of a sudden filled up your entire storage. <laughs> yeah. So let me put this out as a, a um, not an argument. I don't know what the right word is. You can define it. So I would argue that backups in the traditional sense are possibly not relevant in current world. Right? Uh, only for archival purposes. Even to some extent for archival, yeah. right? I, I, I think people are moving away from that. Like the major S3 competitors like Wasabi and um, oh, was there one I think of Bar Store, Packet Fabric just bought, right? They never archive it. Because the cost of storage is so cheap, it's always hot cloud storage into it. And I think when you start implementing streaming architectures like Natus, which you do, because backups are great, but for the most part, they're way too slow to restore to meet current yeah. operational requirements. Uh, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. So I think what you're seeing now is a lot of, of message-based architectures with replications of multiple facilities, You know, some forms of sharding across these components into it. Mm -hmm. I think it's just that the, the notion of restore anymore, I think, has just become too expensive with the volumes of data. So this well, is yeah. a slightly different spin on it. Well, it, it, and it's still there, but it's, it's more restricted to disaster recovery versus day-to-day -day operations. Right. But disaster recovery, what do, what do you mean by that? You know, 
taking a snapshot of a of a of a system and then you know recovering from that snapshot you know if the snapshot is 5 minutes off it it could be useless <laughs> it, it, it could be, but in, in many cases, um, the context of disaster recovery here is um, not so much technical failure, but uh, malicious intervention. In, in cases yeah. where, for, for example, uh, a third party uh, uh, like uh, infects your system with one of the many crypto locker um, malwares, or it, it, like a table got dropped or, or anything like that, um, getting 95% of your data back, assuming that that 5% changed between the last snap uh, backup and, and now, is still better than 100% loss. Right. 5% would be a very high percentage change. That's another thing I discovered when I was, when, when I was in that business. I actually had a really good idea of what the average change rate was on on a data set for a given company. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I just put 5% as, as an average number. It's not. It's Most companies, it's like 1% to 2%. I agree. And as the history of, of the data grows, that, that number gets smaller too. Yes, right. right. So we... I, I think we, we also need to start talking when we do backups about hot versus warm and versus cold data. Very much so. Like, yes. Like, uh, Huge I, differences. Yeah. At some yeah, point, exactly. you, your, your data is almost guaranteed to not change anymore. So you, you, you should make it immutable. Uh, that, uh, and at that point, you can have one backup replicated, but one backup and, and no longer included in, in your snapshots. Um, yeah, that's correct. That's an archive, and um, yeah. and also, you know, most companies, if they if they don't, they should have a policy of destruction of data after a certain amount of time. Absolutely. I mean, with, with GDPR around, you, you kind of have to as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and um, and you know, whatever the policy is, it could be two years, it could be five years, could be could be two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, depending upon the nature of the data. And I have to drop. Totally fascinating topic. (laughs) See ya. Maybe we can talk about this some more uh, down the road with a a slightly more focus on like something that comes out of this talk. Yes, love to. Yeah, cool. Archives would be cool. And how to do archives right. Uh, it it depends a lot on 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 what technology stack you're using. You know? Yeah. Uh, like for for some people, archive means uh, everything that you've ever had. For other people, archive means roll up and and just maintaining historical averages. Um. It if if you have a, a table that's not partitioned or, or or sharded, it becomes a lot more difficult. <laughs> I I think my canonical archive is is uh, has the name Internet Archive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even that is uh, is lossy. Yes. 
but they're trying. They do, uh, and they they do an absolutely best effort given their their resources. Yeah, I, actually, you know that's uh, that reminds me that the Wayback Machine is a fascinating archive slash backup system. And I'm wondering what, and I know all of their software is open source. I wonder if any of the folks that do backups and archives have uh, glommed onto that and built on top of it or not. I suspect not because what, what the Wayback Machine archives is the rendered pages or, or the HTML that, that you're you presented. Um, you you don't. It doesn't back up the, the functionality of the of the pages around it because I mean that's changed already. Um, none of your backend code is archived. Yeah. Now that, that there there's been a lot of attempts at. Uh, at modernizing backups and, and archival and and such, um, my experience it's been uh, hit and miss. In many cases, more miss than hit. Um, but yeah. uh, I, I was thinking tying this back in, into what the, the initial discussion that we had about uh, uh, about data center uh, infrastructure. So. We, we usually talk about backups for, for our software and our state, but um, I mean, there's also the, the, the backup of your physical systems, right? Yeah. Uh, tre treating your infrastructure as cattle as opposed to snowflakes. Yeah, see, I was going to say snowball is the new tape. Ah, yeah, I've heard about that. I looked at it. Long ago, far away, and totally forgot what it does. But yes, <laughs> uh, the snowball stuff. It's uh, so it was a clever solution to the bandwidth problem, um, in my opinion, by Amazon. Or what they did is they took and put together an industrial grade um, box with every network connection you can think of it, and then they loaded it up with storage. So. If you're trying to do a backup, let's let's say for example, real world. Let's say I'm I'm dealing with the Disney uh, content library, and let's say it's nine petabytes of data. Do you have any idea how long it would take me to back up nine petabytes petabytes of data going over the network? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I don't it, think I'd still be alive, but hey. <laughs> it, so it's, it's weeks upon weeks upon weeks, right? And and it's highly they're golden masters, so. They are, um, you know, effectively priceless into it. And so it used to be that you would have someone from Disney arrive literally with a suitcase full of hard disk drives handcuffed to their, their arm <laughs> and then go into the data center and start uploading them. So Amazon created a, a device that they can actually ship out to you. Uh, I don't know what the capacity is now. There's different versions of it. Oh, oh right, right. Yes. Right. And so you yeah. plug it in, you upload all your content to it, you ship it back to um, the uh, Amazon facility, and then they plug it in and upload it. So right. it's kind of like an old sneaker net 
um, method for moving content around. But when you're dealing with high amounts of content, right, it actually works. And there was like three flavors of it. There's actually Snowball, which I think there's Snow Cone, Snowball, and then Snowmobile, which if I, Snowmobile, if my memory serves me right, is a semi-truck full of storage. Yeah, I was going to say... Um... Uh, from, uh, 100, 100 petabytes. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot uh, of that's a lot of bits. A friend is a <laughs> consultant for a lot of these companies that were moving to the cloud, and they were always looking for ways to move their data. And literally, some of those companies were shipping uh, semis to Amazon at the time. This was probably like four years ago. They were still using semis full of disks to get them to Amazon. I gotta say, by current standards, these devices, because they're only like the snowballs are only 50 and 80 terabytes. That's not a whole heck of a lot of data anymore. No, it's not. It's not. But those companies didn't have that much. But consider it's like what Google must do and Facebook for all of its user data. Do they keep the raw data or do they distill it and use the distilled data and do they only back up the distilled data or they back up the raw it's legal requirements i mean they absolutely distill it because if you want any historical data and access into it you know we, we would keep our i think of the whole notion of a data like keep everything forever you know kind of thing so you can go back and reprocess the data into it um so you know keeping every byte seems a bit expensive but then you still have to build extracts off of that of, of aggregated or otherwise um, distilled data components into it. That's why I'm saying most of these things, when we talk about data pipelines, the data pipeline becomes the feed into the backup subsystem. You know? and, th- and this is also where, where the, the, the last conversation with, with Beth comes in, uh, came in, that where, again, the, your hot data might be you're keeping everything, but, but once you, you move it into warm, you, 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 you filter it down, and by the time it, 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 it's cold data, you you know you, you don't need to modify it. So it, you have it filtered already. Yeah, but I still argue, like, I, I'm, and I know what their margins are, right? And, um, but I, I got to look at what their base pricing is on these things. When I look at companies like Wasabi, right? So Wasabi just charges you a price for storage that is lower than an archive cost on AWS. Right. So except it's never actually archived. There is like if you're on AWS, you've got depending on which archive level you go to, it's you know an hour to restore, a day to restore, days to restore. This is never archived because the cost of storage has gotten so cheap. Awesome. Right. It is just a cost per terabyte of storage period. And if it's less than you're going to pay AWS, the notion of archiving really doesn't seem relevant anymore. Wasabi also has different terms of use. For example, that I you your egress is not supposed to exceed uh, your your storage capacity per month. So so if if you if you if you have say hundred terabytes in, in Wasabi, you're not supposed to have more than hundred terabytes of egress traffic per month. It's it's meant for archival, not for. Uh, yeah, not number for one. Their number one use case is backup. I'm just simply saying that it, it kind of, it's got a lot of other use cases that go with it. But the point of it is, is if, if you're archiving it to what you would have been putting up in S3, 
you can still have access to it and it's predominantly a right based store right why archive it mm -hmm. right you, you don't have to pay any performance penalty because of the cost of storage i'm just i'm just saying i think that the cost of storage as we go forward and the notion of archiving is going to become um less common Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly, I, th I think with, with with modern systems where you have a lot of services where the where the data does not age well. So it, it, if even if it's like a day old, it, at that point it, it's it's it, so, well, it's not worthless, but but it's it's certainly a. a a very small percentage of, of the of the worth. So, in many cases, it, it also becomes a, a situation where you, if you can't restore within minutes, you might as well not back up at all or archive at all. So, I think part of what we're hear, see, hearing here, though, is that as storage gets cheaper more data is being stored. And the transfer is the costly part here. Uh, and people are hoarders. So they will store everything, even if it's cold data that's cold 30 seconds after it was created. Some people are smart enough not to store that stuff, but lots of people aren't. So, the systems are going to continue along these lines and we're going to have to continue to disaggregate needed information for quick or relatively quick, quick restore and stuff that is useful for researchers sometime down the line, but we're never, not going to look at it in the course of everyday events. And yeah, um, then it's like, how do you get the, the throughput up? Whatever the storage system is, it's going to be cheaper than uh, the time it takes to, to uh, transfer the data. Yes, I think that, I guess what I, I guess when we started the conversation, we were in very traditional land. If I'm going to do a backup, I'm going to bring the system to quiescent mode so I can back it up without changes, or maybe I can do a hot backup in certain databases, you know, and that's independent of snapshots, which is just like, I, I want to have something incremental for everything else on the system because the database has the journal. So I want a snapshot to restore to some point in time that I can recover from and those pieces into it. And then I've got to have some archives off of that. And that may have you know, some cold storage component underneath it. And yeah, you know, 20 years ago, that was it. I mean, that's the way we kind of did things. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to intonate that is I don't think if, if I had a, a greenfield environment and I was designing a, not, not a backup, right? But for most enterprises, it's really disaster recovery, right? I, I would not think in those terms anymore, right? Yeah. And there's several things that affect that, right? I think the, the, the pervasiveness of, of uh, persistent backstore um, message systems out there allows me to feed many different systems at once. It can feed the database, it can feed archivers, it can feed different data ingest pipelines into it. Most of us that are doing these things at scale, have them already replicated at least across uh, geographic locations, if not across continents, and, and by the way, probably federated, so that one thing doesn't take out another piece into it. 
And, and the reason for that is, is because any restore at this point in life, if you don't have a DR strategy, is just too slow. And so I think when you start thinking in a DR mindset where there's always something that's hot, that's at least close to being current, there may be some transactions or some data that's in flight, right? Do I still think of backups is something I need to have? Because effectively, my systems become you know, self-supporting in terms of data, data redundancy. And that is where the security and the supply chain stuff starts kicking in because ransomware and stuff, yeah, disaster recovery, but you can't recover because you don't know where the point was of, um, of contamination. So your multiple images, it's like, unless you have a way of shutting down social security, to keep your old image from being corrupted or encrypted. Uh, mm. Well, and it's, to, so yeah. I'm going to demo for Wasabi on Friday <laughs> using some, some stuff we built to, to kind of connect multiple clouds, event stuff together, but we're actually doing tamper resistant signatures across all the stuff. So just like we would have run OSSEC on our core operating systems to make sure we hadn't been penetrated. We just wrote a little bit of code that allows you to fingerprint everything going into the story so you know whether it's been tampered with or not. So to your point. Wow. And yeah, I figured you'd be on that. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that type of thing is powerful. That's um that's really interesting. I'm trying. Yeah. Huh. So it could be a little bit more sophisticated than that right now, but it was just, you know, if you've got a company like Wasabi, their, their problem is they've got existing workloads in Azure or AWS or other pieces out there. So for them to bring customers on, if it's something more than a straight archive job, they need a way of connecting those different environments together. So we built like 20 different connectors and the major clouds and platforms that do it that allow us to basically take events, API calls, pulled interfaces on one and then translate them into events that happen on other clouds. So we can actually connect those things together and then basically do kind of transformation to make one fit with the other on the adapter piece. But our first use case was file tampering. Is that, and can that be as simple as just getting checksums to see what's going on or? It, it can be. I mean, the original example I did, well, there's two pieces is, is the checksum, remember the checksum, and then compare the checksum, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and their architecture is not perfect, um, but, you know, that's something we'll talk to them about. But, um, yeah, I mean, just, just like we would do, so think about how we do this with OSSEC, right? We, we give it a list of all the files we want to fingerprint, right? We store the list off the box. Right. We, we periodically load the list into memory. Right. And then recheck the fingerprint so we can tell if any of our, our important system files have been tampered with. And then we basically produce a report out of it. So that's the intrusion detection system for probably too many platforms. It's not terribly sophisticated. Right. But it does tell you whether it needs to be. That's that's sufficient. Right. Sophisticated does not necessarily win the day in some of these things, just like for backups. So we just did something like that for S3 storage. It took me like a day. Wow. So does, S, does S3 actually include the, the checksums in metadata? Because that would make it trivial. It would be nice, wouldn't it? 
something we do. Like you can check files and it will tell you to check some of the file that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then automatic recomputing on modifications and that stuff into it to check some history. All these things would be nice. And there's lots of ways of actually making it more sophisticated. But, you know, right now, at least, you know whether or not a file's changed. Fascinating to me that the, the question about backups comes back to integrity of storage more than more than anything. It's like, you know, you need a mechanism to, to recreate the system. You need a message to, you need a, you need a way to, you know, ingest that, that state file back into the system. And then before you do that, you better make sure it's, it's the right file. Yeah. And, and even then the, the, that's still not enough. Like if you, if your backup is a, is a hot snapshot without, mm -hmm. without interacting with, with whatever application that, that you're backing up, um, the files might be consistent from a block level, but they might not be consistent from an application level. That's that curious. So you, you maybe asked the question, Rob. So you can pass an MD5 up that it will validate once the file is uploaded, but it doesn't seem to hash it itself other than using it for computing internal checksums across replicates into it. Actually, it'd be nice to be able to pass up, say, here's my file and here's my expected checksum of it. So you can do that. Um, okay. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's a header on the S3 side here. I just was looking at it. Um, um, you can do MD5, you can do content-MD5 on a, a um, post, and it will calculate the MD5 once it's completed the upload to verify. But that's more of an anti-corruption. Right, the things went through. I, I, like, I like that. So, like, we, I've been writing code that uploads files for us, not to S3, but into our systems. And then we compute a checksum when we do that, and you can download that checksum. And then I've been comparing them, and if they don't match, I'll destroy, you know, delete the file. It'd be interesting to just let the backend take, because um, it's doing the computation. You could actually say, hey, here's my file, here's my checksum. I'm going to write that up as a feature. It's really simple. Um, and then you would be able to uh, just bounce the files, return an error. Yeah, yeah. So I said, I just kind of started with what we we're doing with, with OS sec and said, why don't I just apply that to S3? You know, and so, you know, I said it can become far more sophisticated, but just as a demo. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the original component was it was, can I trigger a Lambda function or an reserve function or something to do something when someone uploads something onto a non-S3 storage or whatever it is? So like right now, we've got it basically calculating the checksums, comparing checksums, and then sending notifications on failures to Slack. I, this side channel, I'm, 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 I like this idea of the whole side channel for data integrity throughout the system. It's effectively what we're talking about, right? Am I, am I reading it wrong? No, it is. Good. I was going to say, it's, it's also not unlike uh, many of the side channels uh, being applied for, um, uh, for supply chain uh, verification 
Like when, when you produce a container image, um, sign it with, with, with notary or, or, or by your authorization, if you use so Google, um, you essentially store the, the checksum somewhere else. I, I, on, yeah. the, the, the public signature so that you can then verify it. Correct. So like in our case, we don't store it back in the S3 volume we read it from. We store it into a different volume and, and we close down permissions on that. So yeah, I was just I was just I was just talking with somebody about that. They're like, well, just take the file and then check check some from the direct the file that's right next to the file you downloaded. I'm like, that never felt safe to me. No. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's for different use cases. The, it, okay. If you store the checksum and, and in the same storage as your file, then that's for for verifying that the transfer was that the transfer was uncorrupted. Correct. Uh, yeah. If you, if you want to to then verify that the file was authentic, then you need to store your checksum somewhere else. Okay. I, I mean, that's clear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean the PGP that, signatures that would be, are different. That would be true with backups from that perspective too. If you're doing backups, you you really want to have a secondary source of met, you know, verifying the metadata of the system, of the data that you're about to recover. But but to take it one step further, right? When you you put yeah. your PGP signature up there and then you basically give them the key to decode it, I mean, doesn't that seem the same as your MD5 example? It's totally secure. Here's the key. <laughs> so your your key should be available on a trusted public server. I understand. I'm just saying is you, you tend to see them right next to each other in most cases, as if somehow this makes yes. it secure. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, and that, now there there are there are valid situations where you might do it. For example, if you first upload the the key, and then it's and then it's verified, and then you reuse the same key for f- future signatures. Uh, you can monitor that key for changes, uh, uh, and and re- re-verify it if necessary. And you, you, or and you can also use the previously downloaded key to verify future downloads. Yeah, well, I was kind of if I was doing this in a bit more serious fashion, and, and we'll see where the conversation goes. What, what I would have actually proposed doing is to in, re-encode the file with a key. And you could only basically decode it with access to the key, which is stored through a separate channel and access through a separate API. Yeah. So if you have the right credentials to access it, we'll decrypt it for you. So it's kind of trying to get in front of some of the hijackers and saying, hey, look, we can make your stuff completely secure. <clears throat> you just need to come back. You may be able to publish it up via S3. But if you want to access it back, you'll need to use an enhanced library. You'll need to go through a hardened endpoint. How do you handle key rotation? Mm-hmm. Good question. Oof. Or, 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 or if, if at all. You'd have, to re- you'd have to re-encrypt to rotate the keys, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is partially the, the, the allure of, of, of cloud storage as well, where you can use KMS for for your encryption. Of course, you, you have to trust your cloud provider. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly do that with AWS, right? You can tie that to their KMS and that will do key rotation, but I don't know how they do. Yeah. I don't know how they do 
They probably version the keys at the encrypted file level. I've never looked at it that closely. Yeah. I, I, I'm just asking this because, I mean, I've I've also dealt with encryption uh, like at, at the secrets management level where, where, where there's tools like SOPs and sealed secrets, uh, which do allow key rotation. Mm. But those are also meant for relatively small files, not, not for backups. You know, one thing we used to do, I haven't done this in like 15 years, probably 20 years, we, we used to split the file into multiple components and store it on multiple volumes, right? And, and then sign the files themselves. So the only way to get back to it was to pass multiple signature tests and then to be able to reassemble the file. Kind of slow. Yeah, and that also increases the uh, the, the risk of failure if it, in one well, of those files is... It started out for a very different reason. It started out after 9-11, and there was a couple of things we needed to do is, <clears throat> one, we had a bunch of government requirements that were thrown on after that about you know, being able to report everything that came across the wire. And so, you know, a lot of the content, if you're basically doing SMB or you're doing SQL queries, right, there was no HTTP request response headers to act with. And so one of the things that we did at BlueCut was we actually did um, TCP byte streaming. So we would actually detect patterns inside of the byte streams and then dedupe them with keys so we could cache subcomponents into it and do deeper inspection on those. Um, and then, you know, the, the storing across multiple volumes and access was almost like a RAID type of disaster recovery piece, but it also provided an additional security layer into it. Oh. Okay, that was a blast from the past, blue coat. Sorry, <laughs> I had to say that. Uh, I I just the 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 intersection of securing data at rest from a backup perspective is almost overwhelming, right? I mean, because it's you were like, oh yeah, we we should secure it and encrypt it and store it encrypted, yay! And then you. <laughs> Plus, you were like, but what about key rotation? I'm like, ooh, snap. Yeah, you should, you, that, that would make a lot of sense. But it, it is. Key. Wow. It, it is overwhelming. And, and, and it's also probably one of the reasons why so few people seem to be doing it right or, 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 or even getting a, 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 a good backup MVP out for, for the company. It's because yeah, like you, you, you think you you have the something that's good enough, and, and then there's 20, 30 different cases where, like, oops, I didn't account for this. Yeah, no, it's, you're you're making me nostalgic for the idea that I could take a tape, <laughs> take it out of the cassette because we used to do this, and like we would drive them home and we would have three copies. Right. And, and, uh, my first startup, we were, we'd, we'd have the two founders would each take copies of the backups to their respective homes on opposite sides of towns. And I think it was in my hurricane evacuation, um, uh, safe, the stuff in the back of the truck. Absolutely. Um, like even and, a decade and, ago, we used to, used to do that, but, yeah. uh, with USB drives. 
I thought you were going someplace totally different. I thought you were going down the DRM path. When you're thinking tapes, I'm thinking VCRs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking, but I, but thinking that that was under lock and key, I felt more secure about that than we've I felt now with data at rest, you know, being, you know, hoping that it's encrypted and that I could recover the encryption that I need to. I, I look, I mean, I think I, it's, does the data have value, right? So like if you're doing like free to air content, no one cares, it's free. Please replicate it, right? If, if it's pay-per-view content, then we have DRM that, that does a pretty good job of solving that problem. And that a few places like Israel and parts of Asia and other portions of the world where they don't care about that, right? And, and then you start getting into, like one of the things we did with Fox, where you're now working with hardware signatures that get, that, you know, hardware encryption based on Western digital SSDs that get a customer ID that can tag the content so at least the police can go after them. But even that was just too much work. You know, the, the, the content, because they were looking to do, oddly enough, is that the, the new um, ultra high def was a, a licensing, since it was new content, they hadn't sold the licensing rights to anyone on it. And so they were looking to say, can we go ultra high def straight to the market, right? Without sacrificing our content, having our ultra high def stuff all over the market for free, right? And, and there becomes a decision point, right? Is, well, are we going to buy a Western digital device for everyone so we can get the hardware encryption? How do we get the customer ID? And oh, well, that requires edge compute. Okay, we can do that. We can tie into a carrier system and do the signature and do it. At the end of the day, the number of moving parts leads to a decision that says, you know what? It's just not worth it. We'll wait to sell the licensing rights to a cable provider that will protect it, right? Or, or we're going to basically take the expense of providing that data integrity into it. And so I think in many of these cases, it really becomes a cost conversation, not a how do we do it. Well, particularly with with, with mm. broadcast content, that there, there there is a there's a point where the 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 technological cost of of protecting your your content is higher than the legal cost of recuperating uh, your your yeah. income uh, via other means. Yeah, and 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 by the way, I mean there, there are certain states where. You know, if, if you report to the police that someone's encrypted the latest release, whatever else, the only thing that's going to happen is they're going to want a copy. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's just a reality check to it. But it does, I, I got to jump, but I'll, I, it does remind me of one other piece that's interesting on this is when it comes to like lowballing the hardware and assets, so the biggest challenges we ever had on hardware is when you, you would get non-technical executives forcing us to choose the cheapest option. Oh. And in one case, that was switches without ECM. And if you ever run MapReduce without ECM, you'll know it's not a, a, a happy thing. When you start getting 30% pack loss, people start to notice. Or, or, or with hard drives, where, where the exec is like, well, the, the, this line of hard drives is so much cheaper and, and there's, they have the same capacity. <laughs> well, they're also SMR drives and, and your performance is shot. Oh, it's for me, it's the classic. Yeah, go to Costco and buy one of those SSD drives for backup. Oops, there's no firmware for doing it onto Linux. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair, we do need to run. All right, everybody. We'll continue. <laughs>
Next, next week is net is is networking. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Fun. Thanks. Yeah. Bye bye. Backups is one of those topics that uh, is an endless well of challenge and what if and have you considered. Uh, and I think more than anything else, these topics over and over again highlight how much systems are at play in building uh, everything we do with infrastructure today. Uh, and they are incredibly interconnected. That's why I would love to have you join us at the 2030.cloud discussions. Come in, add your voice, uh, be part of it. And one of the things that you don't get to hear in these podcasts is the 15 minutes we spend uh, with our icebreaker, uh, just sort of having a discussion, talking about what's on our mind, going into what is the topic of the day or what's on our minds and, and going around on that. Uh, they don't usually make it into the recordings, but they're always a fascinating part of the discussion. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.